Hello and welcome. My name is Juanita Headley. I am a New York attorney and the founder and CEO of Changing Cases. You are listening to a set of podcasts, a series dealing with the issues of human trafficking, child abuse, and of course, knowing how to respond to the question. Over the following weeks and months, I'll be taking a look at some hard-hitting topics with a view to educate, empower, and inspire you to change the way you think, act, and respond to better safeguard the children in your world. Stay tuned until the end of this show, where I'll be sharing not only how you can get a copy of my new book, but I'll also inform you of some upcoming live Zoom trainings and how you can contact me to have your questions featured in a future episode of this show. So we can talk about it. Let's talk about the types of human trafficking. Human trafficking can include begging, the pornography industry, prostitution, sports, benefits, domestic servitude, sweatshops, labor, organs, and bonded labor. Last week we looked at the three elements of trafficking, act, means, and purpose. And it is important for me to highlight that when a minor has been a victim of trafficking, only the elements of act and purpose are required. The means is not a requirement to prove trafficking for a minor. So just to reiterate, if a minor is a victim of trafficking, only the elements of act and purpose are required. Now, with the various types of trafficking I've mentioned, some of these you may have heard of before, others you may not. With benefits, one of the issues that I have heard about quite recently is of individuals, for example, from Poland, being brought over to the United Kingdom, being kept confined in a house with many others, that their documents are sometimes taken from them for the purpose of registering them to receive government benefits. However, when those benefits are made to person A, Polish man, person A, although it goes directly into his bank account, he does not have the access to receive that money. And in some instances, he is even returned back to Poland and the government will continue paying out benefits to person A. Now, with sports trafficking, I read about this in a book called In Our Backyard by Nita Bells. This book truly transformed my life. I read about a case of a young boy who was trafficked. If I remember correctly, he was leaving his home country, which is in South America, to come to the U.S. to be a model or to be a movie star. However, when he arrived in the United States... He drove for hours and eventually arrived at a house where there were some other girls and boys. That evening, 
a number of men came to the house and requested that all these girls and boys stripped naked and that they would have turned around. If I remember correctly, they did a 360. In other words, the people who had come to view had come to, to see their merchandise because unfortunately, in relation to sex trafficking, boys and girls, men and women are deemed as a commodity, as a product. And so when these men came to view, they came to view their product. And I know such a thing goes on in parts of Europe where the women will walk along a form of catwalk where these men will purchase them and the women are moved between one trafficker to another trafficker. If I remember the story correctly, the young boy was indeed a victim of sexual abuse. He was able to run away and escape. However, unfortunately, he did not remember exactly where that premises was. So the police were unable to find it at the time of the book being written. When I read her book, Nita Bell's In Our Backyard, that story really impacted me. And I said, I really want to do more. In fact, even recently, I read a story on the internet of these two teenage girls around 13 and 15, I believe, who alleged that their mother was selling them into prostitution. This is in Trinidad. And I'd heard of something similar previously. And I'd heard of similar cases in the past. Sometimes when I hear these stories and I'm hearing them frequently, it does affect me. I'm a human being first, Christian second, and I have emotions. I'm not a robot. And sometimes hearing these stories, it impacts me. It angers me. But more than that, it motivates me to want to do more. In fact, I remember when I heard a case quite recently that I said, I don't know what I'm doing here. Why am I sitting, working from home, sitting in an office, doing domestic violence prevention work after the fact, when really I need to be proactive. I need to travel the world, take my message and educate people. Because what I'm doing in my job, I'm helping after the fact. And for me personally, that is not enough. When I listen to my stories, of the victims, of the clients, when I hear their stories over and over again, many of them have been abused by previous partners, previous boyfriends, and many of them had grown up in an abusive household, witnessing domestic violence by their parents, and many of them have been sexually abused as a child. Understanding that it started 10, 20, 30 years earlier, that gave me the realization that I'm in the wrong job. For me to sit and listen to stories after the fact, I need to talk to these women when they're children, when they're growing up in a domestic violence household, when they're teenage and their boyfriend has hit them once or twice. That is what I need to do. And so I said, you know what? It's time to leave. And I'm now on the next stage of my journey. Reading Nita Bell's book and hearing other stories online, on Facebook, it does infuriate me. Not enough is being done. And unfortunately, many of us don't fully understand that trafficking is not just sexual. It is not just labor. Trafficking is very broad. In fact, I recently went to a bank and there were two women, Eastern European. One of them speaks English. The other one does not. The non-English speaker had a bank card and said she wanted to get out money. The teller at the bank said, this isn't your card. Whose card is it? 
and the translator communicated that and expressed, this card belongs to my husband. And the bank teller said, I can't take any money from your husband's card. Do you have your own card? So the lady gave her own card after translation, of course, took place, but there was no money in that. At the end of the interaction, the bank teller returned the bank card. Now, watching this situation unfold, I had issue with the bank teller's response. Now, I can't speak for every bank or for every country, but I am convinced that if this had happened in the United States, I'm convinced they would not have given that card back. And I feel that the bank teller responded very inappropriately. For all we knew, that lady was a trafficking victim. She did not speak English. She has the card of somebody else. The translator could indeed be her trafficker. And the reason there is a translator is because by you translating, you are setting yourself aside from the situation. Now, legally, you would be a, an accomplice. However, that bank card is in the possession of the non-native English speaker. So if the police were to do an arrest, theoretically, they would not need to arrest the translator because the translator is merely translating, right? They would arrest the person with the bank card that doesn't belong to them. For all we know, that lady who didn't speak English was a trafficking victim. The bank card belonged to a trafficking victim. For all we know, that could have indeed been the reality. And I'm going to go one step further and say even the translator could have been a trafficking victim. Just like I mentioned how in previous sessions with a pimp, he can have his women engage in criminal activity as an accomplice. And even there are times when in the United States, for example, one of the prostitutes crosses state lines with other prostitutes and she will get arrested, not the pimp. And the pimp will say, I have nothing to do with it. I have nothing to do with it. And that is where the law will come into play because the pimp would be prosecuted as an accomplice. After all, those are his women. And he instructed the prostitute to drive across county lines with the other women in the vehicle. Now, I don't know the end of the story with this woman in the bank, but I will say that quite clearly, in my opinion, the bank teller's response was wholly inappropriate. I feel that if I had gone to the bank as a black individual with a bank card of a male, I feel convinced they would not return the card to me. I feel convinced. They may not go so far as to call the police, but I feel they would not return the card to me. Unfortunately, prejudice exists in the world in different shapes and forms. And that is unfortunate that a person can go into the bank, not be an English speaker, be of white ethnic origin, and be treated as though what they have done is not in any way a cause for concern. But if a black young boy a black male or possibly myself, a black female, went into the bank with somebody else's card, I don't feel convinced they would return it to us. Domestic servitude is a big one. Now, with Filipino women, for example, many Filipino women leave the Philippines to get work overseas. They work in the Middle East and other parts of the world. Many Filipinos, male and female, study to become nurses, and once they're qualified, they're able to work overseas. In fact, there is terminology that is used. It's OFW, Overseas Filipino Workers. Domestic servitude is not a Filipino issue, 
but it's something that I've heard about very often with Filipinos. They travel overseas to another country and they become a housemaid despite often being qualified with a degree in their home country. And they simply work usually seven days a week, often with no day off, very little pay, sleeping on the floor in the living room. They are treated like slaves. Now, sometimes their situations are a lot worse than that and sometimes they're a little better. But exploitation is exploitation. And the issue with how situations can vary between person to person is with Vietnam and Vietnamese trafficked men, particularly those who are working in cannabis factories and farms. The problem is that the reason why they often do not want the support and help of the government is because the money that they would receive from the government, whilst their case is being looked at to determine if trafficking is involved, is not as much as they would receive when they're in these cannabis farms. And so unfortunately, it may be difficult at times to work with a Vietnamese survivor because they would much rather work in the cannabis farm because the money that they get is so much more than the money that they get back home. Now, I have issue with the fact that quite often Western countries outsource their work overseas. I was even offered a position in the United States. I won't say where, but I was offered a position providing legal support Now, the Filipino who lives in the Philippines told me about this job and she was earning in British pounds 200 British pounds a month. Now, when I reached out to the employer, he offered to pay me, let's say, 150 pounds. Now, considering that I'm a licensed attorney, I would have liked to have received the same salary as her or even more. Now, it was 40 hours a week and he was unwilling to pay for my internet access. Truth be told, in the end, I did walk away from that position. Although I was in the Philippines and that money would be a decent amount, I felt uncomfortable. To be quite honest with you, I felt exploited. You're paying me 200 pounds a month to do legal work, whereas in the United States, you'd be paying 200 pounds a week, 200 pounds a day, for example. And so for me, I felt this doesn't feel right. Now, am I saying this Filipino is being exploited? That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying the dynamics are different because although I looked for this job in the Philippines, I am a British citizen, I'm a New York attorney, and therefore I have an edge that this Filipino doesn't have. I can come to the United States, not to work, but to volunteer. If he sponsored me, I could come and work. The issue is there are many organizations, I will not name them, many businesses that outsource their work to the Philippines, to India, to third world countries where their English is of a high standard that it is easy for native English speakers to communicate with them. The issue I have with the outsourcing is that often they do not pay them a decent wage. It is decent according to their living standards, but not decent compared to what they would be paid if they worked here. So for example, let's imagine that a call center job in the UK, you're earning 1,500 pounds a month. Now, when they outsource it to the Philippines, they pay them 300 pounds. Does that even sound right to you? For me personally, I think, okay, in the Philippines, 200 pounds is a good salary. In the UK, 1,500 is a good salary. So why don't you pay them 500? 
I'm not saying double from 200 to five. I'm just saying you obviously want to make a decent profit, but you want these people to benefit more than just an extra 50 quid. 200 pounds Filipino salary, 1,500 in the UK, pay them 500, maybe six or seven, maybe half, 1,900 UK, maybe split it in half, 750, for example. I just had issue with that. For me, I appreciate that these businesses want to be successful. They want to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. But I just find that I feel that they're taking the love of money a little bit too far in the sense where they're paying a decent wage, but they could be paying so much more. Now, one of the other types of trafficking that is quite common in India, labor trafficking or bonded labor, would be with brick kilns, brick factories. Now, with bonded labor, for example, an individual is offered a job to work making bricks, producing bricks. Let's imagine a man with his wife. And because it's India, I'm going to be realistic here. He has two sons, usually in India, sons. I even have friends and former colleagues who have recently given birth. And I didn't ask them, oh, what was it? Of course, it's not a need. It's a child. I just said, did you have a son? Because remember, it's India. And they said yes. And even if I had another friend give birth, I would ask her, is it a son? In fact, I know four individuals who've given birth within the last two years or so. And every one of them gave birth to sons. So I'm going to assume this man, I'm going to go there and say he is older than his wife. I'm going to go there and say it is not forced marriage. Forced marriage and arranged marriage are two different things. They are not the same. Forced marriage is when it is not of your own free will. It is when somebody makes you, you have no other choice. Arranged marriage is when there is the option. There is the suggestion. They are completely different. Of course, an arranged marriage can indeed become forced marriage. That is possible, but they are very different things. So I'm going to go there and say this guy is 10 years older and he looks aged. He's from the south of India. He's from Chennai. His skin is darker because he spends a lot of time in the sun. 10 years older than his wife. His wife is young. It is an arranged marriage, not a love marriage. Because in India, from my understanding, there are three types of marriage. Forced marriage, arranged marriage, and love marriage. And they start in that order because forced marriage is against your will. Arranged marriage is where you're able to consent. Love marriage is when it is mutual feelings. It is not about consent. It is about romantic feelings, feelings of love and affection towards one another. Now, this young woman has married this guy, arranged, not false, arranged, not love. They have two sons and he begins to work in a brick factory. Now, when he continues his job, he needs, of course, materials and tools. Because the tools that he has, unfortunately, those tools, they're very old. Let's assume they've been passed down from one family member to the other. And he's not able to get his job done as quickly as he would like. Therefore, he's in need of tools. Or if we change it a little bit and say that, in fact, he has no tools at all, but he's been offered this job. So when he's been offered this job, what does he do? He says to his employer, I don't have any tools or, for example, the tools that I have, they're simply inadequate. His employer says, don't worry about it. I will give you tools. It will cost you 
1,000 rupees. Now, this individual has started work in the brick factory in debt to his employer, and he works and he earns an income. But his employer says, because you owe me a thousand rupees for the tools, I'm going to be deducting from your salary. Every month, a deduction is made from his salary. However, there is also interest. So although a deduction is being made for the 1,000 rupees, the 1,000 rupees after six years is now 850 rupees. Does that make sense to you? Of course not. It's because of the interest. Bonded labor often goes from family member to family member. This man will be in debt for the rest of his life. And that debt will go on to his son because there is interest that is accruing on these tools. On the contrary, if he had started that job without having to borrow the tools, he may indeed be in a better position. In fact, although he may still end up becoming a victim of trafficking that is bonded labor, the debt may be smaller, but the debt would never disappear. And in sex trafficking, it's a similar thing that is sometimes done with women, where they are invited from one country to another with promises of a job. However, they are in debt to their recruiter. Recruiter is the act. And understand there was a case recently in the UK of some Vietnamese individuals that were bought by lorry and maybe other vehicles into England. They came in through Scotland or Ireland and when that truck was apprehended by the police, all of the individuals inside the truck had died. Somebody made the comment to me and said, well, they should have used that money that they had to set up a business in their home country. Where I stood, that comment was ignorant. I'm not saying the person is ignorant, but the comment was. Because realistically speaking, when a person leaves from their home country, speaking very little or no English, and uprooting themselves, going to the other side of the world, to the unknown, with the possibility of trafficking or exploitation, the possibility of death on the way there, why would they go to such extreme lengths if they were financially stable? If they had the money, realistically speaking, wouldn't they fly to the UK? Wouldn't they come over legally? The reason they came over in the truck is because they most likely did not have the correct documentation. Also, it's important to point out that many people who come over to the UK or to the US, come over to a first world country, they are in debt. They are in debt. So although they have arrived over here, whether that's by plane, truck, lorry, boat, do not misunderstand that they have money. Often they borrow the money from the recruiter they borrow. And when they come over, they are thousands of pounds in debt. And it does not cost that amount of money for them to get here. But what happens is when they come over in debt, they end up being in bonded labor where they will continually be paying off their employer for the rest of their lives. And that is why it is hard for them to leave and go back home, hard for them to leave because they know that that recruiter has threatened to take out their family, has threatened to take the lives of their family children, has threatened to sell their daughter into the sex industry. We need to understand it is very difficult to leave. In domestic violence, people make the comment, 
why doesn't she just leave? It is not that easy, even with domestic trafficking, bonded labor. There are so many reasons why it is difficult for a victim to leave. Fear, blackmail, the possibility of death or serious harm. Because I've heard of a victim who managed to escape human trafficking, specifically labor trafficking. When they were found and brought back, they were brutally beaten. We do not understand what it is like to be tortured, to be violated, to be abused and beaten. So it is unfair for us to say he should just leave, she should just leave. It is not that simple. And trafficking, as we unpack it week by week, is a complex issue and a complex topic. And it is for us to have a better knowledge and understanding. So that way we can be helping others. We can be brothers, keepers of those around us. And more than that, we can place responsibility on protecting victims and survivors upon ourselves. Instead of saying, why doesn't he leave? Why doesn't she leave? Let us safely intervene by calling the authorities, not by trying to rescue that person. That is a very unwise and dangerous thing to do. But instead, let us intervene safely through calling the authorities. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Keep a Secret? I trust that the information has been useful to you. I believe we all need knowledge and education. And when we have a better understanding of topics such as abuse, it enables us to better safeguard the children in our world. For a better understanding of the topics being covered each week, then please reach out to me for a copy of my new book, Can You Keep a Secret? You can follow me, message or email me so that I can answer your questions in upcoming episodes. We can all learn from one another. And this is an educational series that I hope will impact and change not just your life, but also that of the people around you. You can find all my contact details on my website, changingcases.org. That's changingcases.org. Remember to share this podcast with friends and family members. There are victims and survivors in your world. You just don't know it. But if we can all be educated, then the world will be a safer place. Please tune in next week for another episode. You got my trust and together we can be stronger. So we can talk about it. Yeah, we can talk about it.